1: everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking re- to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Um, today, we're talking about a topic I wouldn't have thought would have been discussed on my show before, because it's something completely foreign to me, really. And that's football, which, when I was g- given a chance to look at this book, I did some research. I found out football is actually a sport. Um, uh, that was kind of news to me and such. Okay, I'm being a bit facetious, but this is a household where whenever we turn on the Super Bowl every year, my wife is the one who cares about the game. I read books during the game and watch during the commercials. So that's how different we are. But in my capacity of answering questions for other ministries, someone told me about this book they wrote about football, and apologetics. And I replied and said, yeah, I might not be the best one because I really don't understand football at all. I don't enjoy it, nothing. And he said, you'll get this book. So I said, okay, give it a shot. And I thought it might be something worth discussing. The book is called Ready, Set, God. God. It's a football story with illustrations that share evidence for Christianity. And it's by Jason Jolden. He got a master's in business administration, certificate of advanced graduate studies in accounting. He also has a BS in business administration with a concentration in finance and computer information, and a minor in psychology. And then in 2012, he got an MA in Christian projects from Biola. So, uh, Jason, welcome to Deeper Waters Podcast.
0: Thank you, Nick. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: You know, as I'm looking over this brief, it kind of looks like you've bounced all over the place a little bit, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. You know, the the first part you mentioned was really my, you know, professional career, getting degrees in business, finance, accounting, and that's that's actually been uh, my day job for for over 20 years. Is in the finance services uh, industry, but my, my passion and my love is Christian apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we'll get into a little bit more of that, but that's later on, I, I went and got a master's degree
1: in that. Yep. So how did you get to be doing what you're doing then?
0: So I, I actually, um, you know, I, I got married in my early twenties and we, uh, my wife had been a Christian all her life. I was raised uh Catholic and, but just really was, not practicing in any meaningful way i thought always had a tug back to god but when i met her uh it was refreshing because i wanted to start going to church again and and i I would say i really became a a believer uh and i and i had and i moved to uh to protestant um and and really became what i would say is a real christian uh in my early 20s and
1: uh, so what i'm thinking happened is that then you saw her face, now you're a believer, right?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I certainly was taken by her, and I will say after my first mm-hmm. date, I, I went home and, and told my mother that this was the girl I was going to marry. I was, I was taken by her, mm-hmm. but I was also taken by, by Jesus and, um, and our, our Lord and Savior and everything he had done for us. And, and so I, you know, we got married and then just really started to grow in, in our faith.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did you find out about Christian apologetics, Finn?
0: Yeah, so it wasn't until I would say maybe 10 years later, Mm -hmm. uh, my early 30s, is when I had recalled, I thought I had recalled reading a book um, about some evidence, and it just kind of stirred up in me again. I don't know what what made me think about it, but I went to a Christian bookstore and started asking about it, and it turns out it was um, Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter,
1: that's actually the first book I read on Christian Apologetics. I love it. Isn't it I mean it's such a, it's a simple read, but it
0: was really uh, insightful and captivating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So at, at, you know, I saw that book again. I got it, I think I, I read through it maybe a little bit again, and I was taken by the topic. And so I started to find, you know, are there other books with Christian evidence? Is this a you know a big thing or not? And I did some research and found the book, um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, mm-hmm. uh, by, by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. And I just devoured that book. I, it was one of my, my favorite books outside of the Bible. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that, that's where we differed some in our past, but it could just be a time thing. Because the next book that I discovered on my path, which started around the year 2000 or so, was Lee Strober's The Case for Christ. hello hello Wow. Either. What happened? Uh, I don't know. I think my
0: I think my internet shut off for a minute.
1: Okay. Well, don't worry, we're gonna keep going on like n- nothing else, like nothing happened. Okay. Okay. I well, he- I
0: heard you say your next book was the uh, Lee Strobel. That's a, that's when I cut
1: out. Yeah. So. Okay. I'm gonna kind can repeat that line again. and we'll keep going. Okay. Great. Well, you know that's how your story differs from mine in some ways. It could just be the time difference and such. But the next book I read was Lee Strobers, "The Case for Christ," and I look back and say that was the book that lit my fire and got me going. And before too long, pretty much all I was reading was Christian apologetics.
0: Yeah, that's that's terrific. I um, you know, I read a little bit of Lee Strobel's, but I I geared towards a lot of the Norman Geisler, and then I went to. William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas, and I kind of went went that route, but yeah, all great stuff.
1: And I'm going to guess you've been a football fan all your life.
0: Yeah, since and I actually mentioned this in the book. I think my earliest memories uh, were with football. I My dad was an avid football fan, grandfather, and so I just remember them yelling at the TV, and I was kind of interested in what they were yelling at, and uh, soon, I just was was taken by uh, by the sport, and so I have been a football uh, fanatic mm-hmm. o- all my life.
1: Yeah, you know, see, there's a spot where we radically differ here, because the only sport I grew up having any interest in watching was in Tennessee watching Braves baseball with my dad, and that was it. But I live in the Knoxville area, and I I honestly consider. UT to be one of the greatest forces of evil out there. Because <laughs> I, I I keep saying every time around the autumn or so, that the residents of Knoxville fall under this powerful evil mind-control spell and everything gets colored orange. And I have a feeling about if I'd stayed in Knoxville, I would have been stoned to death for being a blasphemer for too long. <laughs> But I have to say, I think the idea here is something really worth pursuing a bit more because, I mean, I like I said, I don't care for football, but I can enjoy a movie like, say, Rudy, for instance, or Coach Carter, both sports movies, but they're not really about the sport per se. And I do remember going to see with my in-laws, my wife, the Blind Side, ever, and. So I I can enjoy some, but I think wouldn't it be great if we did this with other areas? Like I'm a gamer, and one of the I think I've only read like two books on video games and apologetics, and I would love to see more like that. And are you kind of hoping this is the first of many? You, you know, it really is,
0: Nick, um, and I, I would say too that my family. Mm-hmm. is is like you um i know you said your wife watches a little bit of the game while well, you're not my wife doesn't have any interest in football at all she doesn't mm-hmm. even sit there for the super bowl and really none of my three kids are are that big into it mm-hmm. um and so what what i tried to do was write a book that was about football but that there was a story there mm-hmm. that people could could kind of follow along uh, and still be a little bit interesting, and and really the point is mm-hmm. is to use illustrations from the football game mm-hmm. to make the point with apologetics. So to your question, yeah, I think that can be done in a variety of ways. My mm-hmm. my sons love video games. I could maybe you know do something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I think these illustrations are are still the way that Jesus taught. And I think can really be powerful, you know, And illustrations and analogies only go so far, right? I say this in a book. It's, it's never a perfect correlation, but sometimes it can help us to understand a point and remember a point.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking, I was at just now as you were saying, I was saying, you know, there are people like me who, you know, unless we lose a bet or unless I'm trying to do something special for my wife or something. You'll never find me at a football stadium during a game. Not at all. But you might be willing to talk me into watching, say, Rudy sometime. And I think your book could kind of work the same way. If you've got someone who's a fan of a sport already, well, they'll probably like and appreciate it a lot more. But someone like myself, I can say, well, you know... I don't understand sport where but it's the story aspect that makes it interesting. And it's the thing I like about the story is you're not just describing the game.
0: It, yeah, it's a part of his life mm. too. Like it, it, it's there's some there's some flashbacks to what he's gone through with his life. And that's why again my, my wife who doesn't really know a lot about football or even like it, she still was able to kind of follow it and, and like it to some degree. The same mm. thing with my mother in law. So people who really like football mm-hmm. will probably gravitate towards the book. But even those who don't love the game of football, it's still written in a pretty simple way. And there's a lot of story around it, not just the game.
1: Okay. Give us a little bit of a lowdown of the story without tearing the details, you know.
0: Sure. Yeah. So it's it's um, it's really about uh, a fictional football story between two brothers. Mm-hmm. um and, and really they're they're playing against each other they're they're adversaries in the story they're, they're both are quarterbacks of the opposite teams and and really the main character um is is the where the story's told from his perspective and he really wants to beat his his brother at something this is something he's been waiting all of his life for something he's dreamed of and um and, and so the football game is the whole story. But as the plays occur, mm. uh, I use an illustration from those plays to then stop and then finish the chapter making a point of, about some evidence. Mm. So, so the, really the story is the football game itself but you're getting some flashbacks about his life as he's progressing through the game while all throughout the book getting some apologetics with football illustrations.
1: Yeah, uh, as I was thinking, I was thinking, what kind of gaming is this going on? I was thinking it's probably not high school football because they both likely being brothers go to the exact same high school. But is this college, is this professional? That part was a bit unclear to me. Yeah, you know, it's a great point and I actually I
0: purposely left that unclear mm. because I didn't well, first of all I didn't want to violate any, you know, leagues and talking specifically about a league. So I left it where it could just be either college or some kind of a pro game um and then people could I maybe identify it with maybe something going on in their life. So so that part I, I purposely left a little unclear in that regard. Mm.
1: And the, sto- the- Story is also, it's really very psychological, because, I mean, everything in the story takes place in about an hour or so, where aside from, like, you get to the final chapter and you see here's where everything came about as a result, but pretty much everything takes place in an hour, but you see, you get kind of introduced to everything that's going on in the main character's head, and it's only his head, you don't get to look inside the head of anyone else.
0: That that's right. Yeah, he's basically telling the story from a, a first-person perspective, and and as he's going through the game, uh, some things uh, they, they jog back, bring back some memories. They trigger certain events that reminds him of um, you know his brother or his or his father and uh, his mother, which is something that happens to her. I won't give away. Uh, he has a love interest, so. So he's playing the game. They're going through the plays. You're getting a little bit of that football. But there's also these triggers back so that you can get a window into his, his life and what he's experienced.
1: Okay. So let's look into some of the evidences that you present. And I mean, you are a, a Biola grad. And I don't tend to agree with everything that comes from Biola and such. But I do think it's still good, solid material and such as just I'm a total so it's not necessarily the approach I take, but let's go through and look. One of the things that you said, and I, I don't think I'm spoiling too much by saying this about the book, is, but there is a kickoff in the book. and I, I'm i sorry, people, I had to tell you this. The game actually starts at some point, and that's probably the only one I'm really going to make a big deal about here, you know, but how is that in the evidence for Christianity?
0: Yeah, you know, this was the first one that I think came to me with a football illustration was the whole kickoff. uh, Was that, you know, I was trying to think of a way how, how I think the beginning of the universe is one of the most powerful evidences for the existence of God. There's there's others I think are great, but that one there I think is really powerful. And William Lane Craig has done a lot of great work on the Kalam Cosmological. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to think of a way, how, how do we demonstrate this cause and effect and this beginnings? And I'm just thinking for every football game has to start with a um, a, a decision and and uh, a, a cause that actually kicks the ball and gets it started, and um, and the game doesn't begin until that action takes place. And so I just tried to again align that with this beginning of the universe a cosmological argument as as evidence for God. Not a perfect correlation, because you know I try to make this point in the book. You know, before the universe, there was literally nothing—no time, no space, no matter. So that's a little bit different than a football game and the footballer existing. But it's that cause and effect in in the start of something that I was trying to make the illustration for.
1: Yeah, all analogies do have their limitations somewhere, after all. But uh, the point's made. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm I'm hearing something. You know, it's very really fascinating. I hear you use the tradition. Craig form of a kalam cosmological argument. I use much more of a Thomistic form of it. And a few months ago, I'm, I don't know if you know this, I actually did a debate against Dan Barker on the existence of God in a in a university setting. And I used pretty much three different arguments all together. And I've got right here next to me a book that I'm going to be interviewing at least one or both of the offers on. I'm hoping sometime next month, if not probably in August, but. Uh, two dozen or so arguments for God. And, okay, Craig's argument is in there, but it's kind of an additional one. It just strikes me. there's so many theistic arguments we can use, but I think for many people, the beginning of the universe is a really powerful one. I I, I completely agree. And I think it's
0: uh, it's a simple, clear argument around cause and effect. And then when you... The only difficult piece is, you know, there's a little bit of science Mm -hmm. that's related to, you know, space and time and matter and and the, you know, understanding the cosmological models that there was a point of literally nothing, like not even a dot or density or singularity. There was a point of literally nothing, and then it came into existence. And, you know, something has to cause that. Um, And so, again, try to keep it simple in the book, but there's a little bit of science in there for those who want that. Uh, but I think it's a very powerful argument.
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that really keeps me from using the Craig form of the column so much is, and when Craig uses it, I think he goes so much into the science that I think it's not very really easy for the layman to use it. So how do you best present this for the layman who might not be scientifically astute?
0: Yeah, you know, I, uh... I use a little bit of a different, um, uh, take on the, and I'm, I'm just looking for it as we're talking here. Um, you know, my, my illogical way I put it is, you know, if the universe had a beginning, something beyond it must have caused it, you know, something, something can't cause itself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if, if the universe had a beginning, something outside of the universe must have caused it. That's point one. I think, I think that's pretty intuitive. Mm-hmm. And then the second point is that the evidence is compelling the universe had a beginning. Even if a layperson doesn't know exactly what that evidence is, they know that generally everybody and, and virtually all scientists, not, not, not 100%, but virtually everyone, believes now the universe had a beginning. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if you follow those two points, there must be something beyond the universe that must have caused it. Um, and then usually where it goes from here is a non-believer would say, well, well, how do we know that that is God? I mean, so the universe came into existence. How do we know that God caused it? Well, and this is where I love, you know, again some of the work that you know Frank Turek and Norman Geis and others ha- have done. Uh, when you think about the universe at a simple point, it's it's time, space in matter. I mean, there's more to it, but those three dimensions are really critical. And so whatever caused the universe to come into existence doesn't have time, space, or matter. I mean, it must be timeless and spaceless and immaterial. Mm-hmm. Um, so those attributes start to sound like God. Um, and the other point I try to make in here is that to move from a point of of infinite nothingness because there is no time at this point the infinite nothingness to act to a point and create something would, would seem to involve a decision you're going from infinitely nothing to something that seems to indicate a, a volition a will a, a decision mm-hmm. and that indicates the cause is also personal so when you start to add these attributes up God seems to make the, me- the most sense for the cause of the universe
1: okay but you know, now I have my own answer to this, but I'll see how you answer it, and I think our perspectives could be a di- bit different, and such. You got different philosophies, but you know, this usual skeptic replied this one: is, "Okay, okay, God caused the universe. Okay, who caused God?"
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Nick. I um, and what I try to do in each chapter is it starts off with a story, mm-hmm. and then it gives some evidence. Uh, and then at the end of that evidence, I try to include one question that I think a skeptic will ask. Mm-hmm. And so in that chapter, I actually include, you know, uh, that question a skeptic might, might ask is, who created God? And they kind of ask that as if it's kind of a, well, I got you. If, you. if you can't tell me who created God, then I don't have to tell you who created the universe. And really that misses the point, because w- this argument doesn't say that everything needs a cause it says that everything that had a beginning needs a cause so God by definition is timeless and he is the uncaused cause and somebody might say well you're just you know you're you're just assuming that but it seems to make sense because you you cannot have a, a, an infinite regress of causes there's something that must have always existed and, and we know that's not the universe. So I don't think that that's a fair question to come back with because we're not saying everything needs a cause, just everything that has a beginning, and clearly the universe did.
1: You know, you know probably my approach to the cosmological argument is much more along the lines of, say, Edward Fesser. But if you look at – he's got this great article on his blog, says, so you think you understand the cosmological argument. And one of the first things that he deals with is this idea that so many atheists write against this argument, and they think the argument saying, everything that exists has a cause. And he we say, well, that's pretty simple to take care of. And such. and he says, look, you can go back and look for any defender of a cosmological argument. And he means any serious defender, not Pastor Bob, down the local Baptist church. He means anyone with, you know, who's got the degrees and the study behind and such, none of them defend such a silly argument as that. Agreed. Agreed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my own approach would be to say that, you know, God's nature is to exist, or to ask what caused God is to say, what caused existence, which seems like a nonsense thing. But let's go on to the next argument that you've got in there, and that's also something that strikes people aware, and this is one that. We didn't really need modern science to know about because in the past, you know, ancient a lot of ancients thought the universe was eternal or cyclical or something of that sort and such. But from time more it seems like people have always thought there was some sort of design to the universe.
0: Yeah, I, I, and again, I, I think this is another very powerful argument. Um, you know, uh, before uh before the time of evolution you know creation just what people observed um on earth i think uh clearly spoke design to them um and and then when this theory of evolution came came along uh it seemed to strike as a counterattack against this argument now i i'm a I'm a firm believer in, in creation. I think the science actually mm-hmm. uh, goes against evolution. I, I think it's very strong. But, um, you know, rather than get into that discussion debate, I decided to go along the lines of where the contemporary debates around this design argument uh, have gone. And so when William Lane Craig debates and others, they typically will use the fine-tuning argument that, you know, the universe – is finely tuned to support life earth itself is finely tuned to support life and what are the mathematical odds around those well you know this is where it can get a little bit deep from a science perspective but but the probability of that happening by chance is mathematically impossible and and what i love is when when scientists don't agree with this argument Mm -hmm. what they resort to is is profound nonsense i think is they claim well there's an this is an infinite number of universes is the multi-universe and an infinite number of universes and ours happens to just have the right parameters to support life now there's no way to verify this but it, it strikes me how powerful this argument is if atheists have to go to that length to to try to explain away why we have these parameters so precise
1: you know, it, it, once again, I'm struck by how different our approaches are, and yet we can reach the exact same spot. Because, from my thinking, I don't get into the creation-evolution debate. And what I've sat down, is okay, let's suppose I were to grant that science could show evolution is true. How would this be a problem for me? And I started looking for it where it wouldn't be. I mean, it, it's just like saying, you know how the psalm says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and it refers to being made in my womb, Well, the fact that there's a timely process that takes nine months to do that on general doesn't really count against that. And so, part of my thing is that any Christian and any atheist, both who treats evolution as a defeater for Christianity or theism, doesn't understand one of the Something in that area, because I really don't see it as a problem at all. Now, I I definitely agree also on the multiverse. As far as I know, there's no hard evidence for it or anything. But, again, I'm not a scientist. But something I've said about that before is... (laughs) Picture an analogy, if you will, of being a police commissioner. And you're called on the scene, and there's a dead body... And no one can explain about this dead body. Uh, like, who did the crime, why they do it, that such thing. And then one of your officers comes towards you. He's running and panning and says, says Chief, I've got it all figured out. You do? How, what's the explanation? Oh, it's very simple. There's 500 more dead bodies in the next parking lot over. I mean, it's like saying, if you need an explanation for one universe, don't you need an explanation for... Multiple universes. I mean, it just seems like instead of solving a problem, you've made the problem even bigger.
0: Yeah, especially when you when you go back to that first argument of cause, it still doesn't explain how this all got started. So something has to be an uncaused cause. Something that's always existed. So it clearly doesn't explain that. I think they try to use it to explain. How in the world could all these parameters be so precise Mm. um, just based on random chance? And that's where they need these infinite number of universes. But again, they can't confirm that. I mean, there's no way to confirm that it's outside of our universe by definition. And to your point, they would still need a cause to get everything started. So I just think it's an end around to not want to believe in a creator.
1: Mm And I also think that most of us, we just intuitively see things and think someone put it together. Now, if someone very skilled in sciences can explain how this came about, there's something that really gives me pause about evolution at times. It's, as a married man, I look at how men and women come together, and that results in children and such, and I sit back and wonder, how did these two systems come about independently and work so well together, that just doesn't strike me as an accident, as it were, you now, like i said i've had I'd have no problem with, say, evolutionary creationism, whereby God uses a process of evolution to do things, but I think most of us just really don't see pure chance as capable.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think pure chance is is capable at, at all. I, and I think that the evidence against it is is mounting. Uh, again, I I as I've looked at this, I'm not a scientist uh, by training, uh, but I, the evidence I've looked at, I I feel very strongly on the creation side. But I I do hear the points you've made in terms of it, it doesn't mm. necessarily um, maybe conflict with the core of Christianity. Um, the only thing that I think that would, bo- one of the things I think that would bother me, though, is in Romans 1, it, it talks about how the evidence for God's existence is clear, but you can just see it by looking around us. Mm-hmm. And and I, too many, I think, of, our, of um, young brothers and sisters have heard of evolution and it's thrown them into a crisis. And so that's what gives me concern. Um, but, and I just want to say one more point, as you were mentioning, you know, the reproductive systems, I think this is a, a huge point, Nick. I, I remember reading this in, in the book by Walt Brown, uh, in the beginning, There's a lot of great science there, mm-hmm. but he also made that point of these two reproductive systems for, would have had to have randomly evolved together and not gone off track in, in one way and this would have had to occur occurred for, for millions of species. I mean, what is the chances of, of that happening in a random chance? It doesn't, it doesn't seem rational at all to me.
1: Now, this is one of the good things about doing a show like this as well. As soon as you said Walt Brown in the beginning, he said this. I've never heard of that. I'm looking up the book right now. So maybe I'll <laughs> get that sometime. But one of the great benefits of doing, about, doing this show is I learn about so many new books and such. So, it really is a great reward. But we, we can't spend all the time talking about the design argument. Yep. <laughs> and although, it seemed, it strikes me very interesting that you're going down the straight Craig route, because the next argument you have is the Moore argument. And this is one I agree with to an extent, but I also like to refine it a bit more, so... Let's go ahead and start with hearing you talk about how you express the moral argument.
0: Yeah, um, and this this is one that I struggled with for a long time. I, I I read on it, but it didn't fully sink in until a number of years into my studies, where I really felt it was a powerful argument. And I'm I'm at that point now. Mm-hmm. I think we can at least for me break this argument into two different pieces. Um, one is moral rules, mm-hmm. you know, you know, good in, in evil, right and wrong behavior. We all know that there are these moral rules. Don't kill an innocent for, uh, for no reason. Uh, you can't, you know, steal, uh, somebody else's thing. I mean, there's a variety of rules that we're all aware of. There's, there's also things we're obligated to do. You know, if we if we saw, you know, a child in the middle of the road, there would, would be an, an inclination, obligation to go and, and take the child. So the, everybody agrees the morality exists. The question is, what's the source? And uh, Greg Cokel, one of my favorite apologists. Uh, I, I really like the way that he has explained this aspect because it really gets down to the action
1: itself. I'd like and, to before you go on, we'd like to let people know Greg Kokor has been on this show twice. So go back and look in the archives if you want to see more of that.
0: Yeah, he, he is wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate his ministry. Um but you know, uh, Greg has a way of describing this and you know, pick pick an action. Pick pick something that um is is horrific. Uh, say the the Holocaust with mm-hmm. with Nazi Germany. You know, the things that were being done there and in, in killing of Jews. You know, we would look at that with, uh, with distaste, and, 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 um, and rightly so. Now, is that—those actions by the Nazis, are they wrong because of the way we feel inside, or are they wrong because the actions themselves are wrong? And, and so if we go away, when we pass away and die, does that wrongness go away when we go—when we die— no, the action itself is what's wrong. So it, it seems to indicate that these rules, these actions of right and wrong are independent of, of us. Now, we may have feelings about them, but it's not us that determines whether something is right or wrong. And that starts to paint a light that morality is really objective, kind of like math. One plus one is two, regardless of my opinion. That's where morality seems to sit. It's not like ice cream where I like vanilla and my wife likes chocolate. It's not subjective. So that's one thing I thought to try to talk about is that these moral actions or rules are right or wrong, independent of, of our opinions.
1: You know, it, it's something interesting that you brought in math towards the end because I was thinking that I didn't use the argument from morality per se, but I use. Instead, I think there's a more refined way of point the argument from goodness in my debate with Dan Barker. And one of the things I point out also is mathematical truths are like this. He says, you can easily picture a fairy tale where pumpkins get turned into carriages. You cannot picture a fairy tale where you have two pumpkins and when you get two more pumpkins and you have five pumpkins altogether. And 2 plus 2 equals 4 is such a timeless truth, it doesn't matter if we're here to observe it or not. If you lived in the Mesozoic era, era 2 if you had two dinosaurs and two more dinosaurs, you had four of them. You know to I me mean? This was pretty uncontroversial and such. But Dan Barker actually said, and this one sent me for a loop when I heard it, I was just I couldn't believe he said it. He said, no, 2 plus 2 equals 4 was not true in the time of the dinosaurs. What? Because <laughs> if that's true and technically, then the ideas also of good and evil aren't timeless truths either. So, if your whole argument against God's existence is God does things that I think are evil, well then, your your argument is just as subjective at that point.
0: Yeah, that that's exactly right, and that and that's why I think Christian apologists, and rightly so said the problem of evil is is a difficult emotional question. There's no question about that. But from an intellectual perspective, evil actually helps prove the existence of God. It shows that there is a true right or wrong that we all objectively see. So it, it actually adds to the evidence in making the moral argument for us.
1: We'll be talking more about evil later on, so let's put that part on hold for now here. Something that also strikes me out of this is that so many times I encounter a lot of atheists online, and they don't see the contradiction when they argue. They will argue and insist morality is subjective, morality is relative, there are no absolute moral standards, and then their whole arguments against God are, God allowed slavery, and look what God did to the Canaanites in the Old Testament, I think. Do do you honestly not see the problem here?
0: Yeah, because at that point, they are arguing that slavery is wrong no matter what people think. It's not like Mm -hmm. it was okay back then, and now it's bad. They're saying slavery is always wrong. But to your point, what does that do? That makes morality objective. Mm -hmm. Now, if morality is not tied to people— if if these moral rules are really independent of us, they require a transcendent source. And that's how you start to make the case that that God must be this moral rule giver because it is it's applicable to all mankind. We really can't change what is right and wrong and good and evil. That it's just it's wired into us mm-hmm. by God.
1: Yeah. And in the the no, thing is, I really think that most of these people who claim to be moral relativist, they're actually selective moral relativists. I say you push them on their hot buttons, and they turn into moral absolutists right, right quickly. I mean, I guarantee you, if these people got cut off in traffic, they wouldn't go and say, well, you know, it's it was that person's personal moral choices and such. Now, they'd probably be indignant about what happened and say, he should not have done that. I I think anyone can try and argue for position of moral relativism. I don't think anyone can live it.
0: You're 100% right with that, Nick. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you hit them with a hot topic around something moral that they believe in, they will not respond with, oh, well, okay, that's your opinion, that's fine. They will hold to an absolute or objective opinion about that.
1: Yep. It's just like I, something I've said before, if you want to recognize someone who has a problem with being intolerant and such, here's all you do. Go out and find a person who claims to be a champion of tolerance. Disagree with them on one of their key issues, all of a sudden you'll find out they're truly intolerant.
0: That's a, That's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, You know, the other thing, just going back to just the morality, I remember I mentioned that there were two approaches with this Mm -hmm. and one was the moral rules. The other one was moral values. And I think this is a really powerful argument um, because the moral rules say that, okay, there are some things we 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 should and shouldn't do. So Mm -hmm. let's let's say, um, you know, to harm an innocent is is the rule but there's a there's a difference in degree when you harm let's say an animal versus a person both are are clearly wrong mm-hmm. but the degree of wrongness is even worse for a person so what you see is there's this hierarchy of value where where humans are at the top and then there's you know certain animals and then you get down to insects i mean you you could put a string together but it's not that we're all one and the same. Yeah. And and if you think about it, that makes sense with Christianity. God is at the top, he has made man in his image, and then there's there's other aspects of creation. That doesn't make sense with atheism. We're just a, a random collection of atoms. And it doesn't make sense with Eastern religions that say we're all just one, and so this moral values is another way I think to point to and argue for the existence of God, and that Christianity is true.
1: Yeah, you know, there, there is a fine distinction about how we treat animals versus how we treat people. It's kind of a little joke that my wife and I between, have between us because we were driving somewhere once, and we got stuck behind a truck for I think it was Tyson or something, it had all these chickens in the back, and I was like. Oh, wow, those poor chickens! And uh, I said, "Yeah, we'll talk about that together next time we go to Chick Fil A." All right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, in in in, you're right. And you know, and, and I'm actually, a, I'm a big pet lover. My my family is, and so I love animals. And God yeah. gave us animals, right? Um, yeah. And so that's why I'm very clear to say to harm a person or an animal is wrong but we all recognize a degree of wrongness and so yeah. what explains that value I, I again i think it's another good argument for for god
1: you know and to get back to the whole thing about morality and those you argue try and argue that morality is subjective and i don't think you can do it consistently i think what's really going on most of the time is they want morality to be relative when it comes to them and i and i thank god see this is the main thing keep morality out of their bedrooms but every other time they want morality to be objective you you are you are so right nick and i and i think it's such a
0: struggle for me i guess how i'm wired as a logical person is is that inconsistency just i, I really struggle with that because that's that's illogical mm-hmm. uh, but you're 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 absolutely right with that
1: so now we need to move on ahead to the next part of uh, your book and that's talking about and where this was related to designs so we're trying to be brief that's information itself mm-hmm. I mean that's your your book conveys information I mean an atheist reading this might say where well, this is false information a Christian could say this is true information I mean you could have very, but we all know that there is some information in there what does that have to do with God?
0: Yeah so I I think um the the point in trying to make it now this isn't one of those i would say conventional mm-hmm. arguments that i typically hear in christian debates but i do think it's a it, it's an interesting argument that um you know everybody can see that information needs intelligence so we could look at a bunch of jumbled words on a page and if it was all random that's it it's just a bunch of a, a bunch of letters on a page just a bunch of letters monkeys but on if, keyboards Exactly, yes. But if those letters were organized in a specific way to spell out certain words and a certain syntax, you know, it, the, the likelihood of that happening randomly uh, is remote, especially if there's a, a message um, uh, with, it, with those words. And that's what I, I include an example in the book to make that point. I think we would all recognize that. If things are organized a certain way, there's information, that requires intelligence. How does that relate to God? Well, I think the more we learn about the human body, actually in, in all organisms, around cells and DNA, there's information throughout our bodies. Uh, DNA is, as as I've read on this, uh, an instruction manual. It's it's a blueprint for creating our bodies in certain functions. You know, when when you get a cut on your on your arm you know, it, it's going to heal the cells, have the information in them to go about repairing that. Where does that come from? I mean, we're talking about 3 billion letters that you get from your mother, 3 billion letters you get from your father that come together in these cells. That's a tremendous amount of information. The chances of that happening by chance, again, I, if I'm looking at this, trying to look at this without bias, that would point to intelligence for me. So, again, I think that's another case, another another point towards the existence of God.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing about healing, it's, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of information theory last yesterday, but I was thinking about it. Even about making a post on Facebook asking how many other people might be like this, because I remember when I was just about to turn 16 or so, I was getting prepped to have scoliosis surgery, which would involve a steel rod being put on my spine. Which did happen. And they have to do... it When they're doing major back surgery, they have to prepare in every way possible. And one of the tests I remember them doing on me is this thing that they were supposed to give me this small little prick with a needle of sorts and then use this thing to see how long it took me to clot. And they would put something on every fifteen seconds until it was done. And they told me the average time for a clock for most people like that was actually ten minutes. I was done in two and a half minutes. And I said, okay, we don't need to do anymore. And to me that that does strike me as an amazing system still and heck even if you told me there was a way that it came about on someone, I'd still say Wow, God, for a very ingenious way to bring this about. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, uh, again, I just think the way
0: it's organized, we don't even understand all how DNA processes. We're getting smarter with that, but again, I just think there's no way they could have randomly happened by chance to come together and have these sort of functions. Uh, you know, and I again, I equated each of these uh, apologetic points with a football illustration you know if you were to look at a a, a chalkboard with a football field on it with x's and o's mm-hmm. you know somebody who knows football would see that that's just not a bunch of random squiggly lines but that the coach has drawn a play that they want the players to go about certain ways and so it it might look like randomness to f- if you don't know football but a person who knows football sees that set up in a certain way, and there's actually a message uh, built into where all those lines are and how they're proceeding. So, uh, again, I just thought it was an interesting way to remember um, that code and information points to intelligence the same way that our DNA does.
1: Okay, so let's move on then to another argument you use, using. I'm not going to ask you to tell how you illustrate this one in the book, but it is one that we've discussed on the show a few times, and I know Gary Happenmas really likes to use this argument a lot, and that's near-death experiences.
0: Yeah, he and he may have been uh, one of the first ones that I, uh, I heard this from. I know J.P. Morlin mm-hmm. is um, another one who's done a lot of study here. Uh, uh, Michael Sabom, who's a Christian, mm-hmm. I, I recognize. Read- reference in the book as well um i think again this is a powerful argument because Mm -hmm. you know people want to know what happens after we die right i mean Mm -hmm. um all of us at some point in our lives and probably multiple multiple times we we think about that uh now as we as christians we have strong hope um and confidence in in our lord and savior but but for the for the non-believer we wonder what happens when we die is that the end Are we just our existence ceases you know, wish there was some evidence that there is an existence after this. Well, mm-hmm. this line of evidence starts to provide a little bit of evidence. There are people who have uh, started the, the the Valley of Death, if you will. They've they've um, they've gone to a point where their body is shutting down, their their spirit, their soul has left their body, and is starting to have other experiences outside of the body. But for whatever reason, they that um, it is it is comes back into their body and then they are um, resuscitated uh, and and then go on to maybe tell some of what they experienced. There is There are just thousands and thousands of these reports and, and not just a few here or there. And it's making this a real valid point that our life is not just uh, in our bodies and ceases when our body dies.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of these cases, right, yeah, some of them could be mistakes and such, people are having strange experiences where nothing really happened, but some of them, it does strike me as pretty hard to kind of explain away, especially when they see things that happen outside their body but they'd have no way of seeing beforehand. And then, of course, some of that Finky mentioned book, when these people come back, usually their total outlook on life is changed, and they have no fear of death, but they don't have a death wish at the same time, but they have like a new zest for life. A-
0: absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think we've got to be careful how we interpret all of the the experience. The, J.P. Moreland does, makes this point, and it's a great point, is we can't get our theology from these experiences, right? right? Because people are going to see some things... And they might interpret it based on you know their background. So that's not the point here. Is to take our theology from them, but it's just it's it's a um it's a good point of evidence that we are not just our bodies, that we do have a soul, and there is an existence after our body dies.
1: Yeah, Gary Habermas has said that you can't get the furniture of heaven from a near death experience, and and it. This isn't just a Christian argument, right? One of the books I've heard a lot of are from Gary Habermas and Michael Kona both. I haven't got to reading it yet, though. There's a book called, it's like, The Self Does Not Die. Something like that. This is written by, tell me, non-Christians. And saying, hey, there's something going on here. We can't explain it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and actually, um, I believe one of yeah, I, I know one of the books I do reference in here. I reference Christian sources for near-death experiences, but one of the ones I also reference is from uh, a non-believer. He's just a scientist um, who has done a lot of these studies. So this isn't this to me. That adds to the point. It it adds to the support that this is true because it's not just Christians saying it. There's non-believers as well saying these near-death experiences are really happening.
1: Yeah, and I did like also that you included um, John Burke's book, Imagine Heaven, in there. I've read that one recently. I thought it was really incredible. Yeah, you know,
0: and that's the thing is I had referenced uh, the the uh, the uh non-Christian book in here, but I, I didn't want that as a, as a recommended. And then John Burke's came out and somebody at our church had mentioned it to me. And I said, you know, I want to— I want to put that in there because if somebody's interested in that topic, I want to point them towards um, a Christian's review and perspective on this. Uh, and that was the most recent. I mean, Gary Habermash, J.P. Moran does some great work there, but that was a recent one I want to at least recommend to Christians.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the next argument you have in your book is – and we might not be able to get to all the arguments and such, but it's the argument from Free will. How does this work? Yeah, so again
0: you know, I, – um this is again probably not a common one done in all of the debates but it's it's one where it just simply says do we really have free will do we really have a choice and i think uh, our our intuition is that we do i think everybody really believes that they have a choice that they can make so if i get hungry and and i really like pizza i could go get pizza but I could also choose not to. I could choose to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get a salad instead. Or or I'm going to just try something different. I really have a choice, even if, based on my disposition, my, my, um, my genetics, I'm inclined towards pizza. I could choose something else. So I think we all recognize we've got this free will, this choice. And, but how does that work? What's the best explanation for that? Again, I think Christian theism— uh, that scripture tells us that we have a soul, I think best explains that. If we were only our bodies and we were, we were basically um, atoms bouncing around and, and, and acting on our environment, we really, our, our decisions would be determined based on physics. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have this inner soul with <laughs> which to actually make a choice. Now, again, I think the response from non-believers proves this because a lot of times they'll say, well, free will is an illusion. You think you have free will, but you you really don't. You're going to follow what your genetic makeup is telling you. But again, I don't think that's the case. I really think we could choose A, B, or C.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have time before a break to get into the next topic here but, yeah, outbreaks breaks are very short We don't have commercials in, but I just want to know that. I'm right now talking with Jason Jordan, author of Ready, Set, God. By the way, am I getting your name right there? Absolutely, okay. yes. And it's a football story of illustrations that share evidence for Christianity. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking with one of our friends from Reasons to Believe again. Uh, Ken Sampar has written a book. And he sent me a copy of it. Classic Christian Thinkers. Looking at nine great thinkers throughout Christian history. And why we as Christians should care about them. It's a great book. So next week we are going to be discussing Classic Christian Thinkers. For now, let's get back to Jason and his book. And at this point, one of the arguments that you give is based on the problem of evil. So that's why I wanted us to hold off on that one. Because I knew we'd be getting to it some. And I'll grant you that. I think intellectually. This one's pretty simple. To address. But emotionally. I think you and I would both agree. It has a huge pull. And I don't know about you. But when I'm going for my own personal suffering. At times something that seems really horrendous. The problem of evil. Really starts getting home to me. Uh, although it's it's kind of on the lines of what C.S. Lewis said, it's not that I'm all of a sudden scared that God doesn't exist. No, instead I'm thinking, oh, g- but God does exist, and this is what He's really like.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Again, you know, we've uh, God has wired us to have emotion and intellect and will, and so we've got a variety of things going on within our our personality. You this is the most common objection, right, that's typically raised against Christians. If God exists, why would God allow such evil and suffering that goes on in the world? And so, uh, again, that first step that you and I recognize and, and I've heard, uh, obviously, other apologists make is we got to be careful with this because if someone is, is hurting uh, emotionally, the this these kind of responses are not going to resonate. They're they're not appropriate. Yeah. Being for them praying with them. I mean, that's that's always what I what I teach the uh, people at our at our church, that's what's important for us is to recognize that. But yeah, we're, I've, we're uh, to-
1: I've told people before, some guys I've taught projects who said, look, if you ever like save a pastor of a church and a mother comes to you and her teenage son has just died in a car accident and she's wondering why this happened, said so if you become a theologian and a philosopher and an apologist. At that moment, I will come over and smack you. She needs a pastor, a counselor, a friend. Now, a couple of weeks or so, however long it takes, when she's more stable. Yeah, you can be a theologian, then, but don't be that immediately.
0: Absolutely, we're hundred percent in agreement. Mm. If it is an intellectual question, you know, it's raised as a response of why, uh, why, why, how God cannot exist. I actually, I I've come to see this as a a pretty easy um, question to respond to, if it's purely intellectual. So again, a lot of times, you know, free will is clearly, um, I think, a great response to this. So why is there moral evil when 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 moral agents are doing bad things? You know, whether it's murder or stealing or or whatnot, it's because God has granted his creation, human beings, with free will. If you're going to have genuine free will. To follow God, you've got to have genuine free will to not follow God. And so that, that is certainly one answer. And then the other one is God is uh, just allowing pain or suffering to occur for mm-hmm. some greater good. Mm-hmm. God has unknown reasons for allowing certain things to take place um for for a greater good and that that's hard because a lot of times we we frankly just don't know god's reasons with that
1: yeah
0: um, now the the unbeliever can say well that's convenient that you know that could be anything but again we're not as william lane craig says we're not in position to know god's intentions with this and it's really i think a valid argument and we can point to examples look at the cross yeah that was a a, a terrible thing that happened to christ But the greater good in providing a way of salvation for mankind, you know, God God allowed it. So,
1: you know, what I try to say also is that we have to remember when this argument is made, it is the skeptic who's going on the offensive, which means they have to prove their point. So if they come to me and say, why did God allow this particular evil? And I say, well, geez, I don't know why he allowed this particular evil. He said, well, geez, see? According to you, there's no good reason why he would allow it. I said, nope, nope. That's not what I said. I said, I don't know the reason. Now, if all your argument was trying to prove that Nick Peters is an omniscient and doesn't know everything, well, geez, I would have conceded that right at the start. And if I would won have, you could have just asked my wife. She would have been more than happy to prove that for wise. But my, if you're making the argument that there's no good reason why God would allow this, you have to demonstrate that case. So, Good luck demonstrating there is no good reason to allow this. That's, that's a great point. I hadn't heard it put that way. That's terrific. That's great. Yeah, I'd like to move on. I'm actually going to skip the 8th chapter because there's so much I want to get into. But the ninth chapter is really much more along the lines of specialty areas of mine. So, yes, I'm biased. I'm going to go that way. And this is about Scripture, actually. The Bible being... Reliable and true, and I like that focus on it being reliable. Because as much as I do hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, even co-writing two eBooks on the topic, I think it's a mistake when we try and argue for inerrancy with the unbeliever. Because if you go that route, then all they'll do is go to some website and there's more than enough of them that present, say, like one hundred and one Bible contradictions. And even if you went and you answered every single one of those, and even answered them to their satisfaction, guess what? They're just going to go to the next website and do the exact same thing again. Yeah, you're you're, you're absolutely right. And I again, I I uh, uh, I'm really
0: troubled that not more Christians know some of these answers, yeah. especially young Christians who go to colleges, universities. They are easily thrown off with some things. You know, simple topics, like how do we know that the Bible we have today is what the original authors wrote? I mean, this could have Mm -hmm. have evolved and changed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a simple question that's thrown at them. And if they don't know that there are thousands of manuscripts, including many that are early, to cross-check and make sure we have the content, they can get tripped up with that. Yeah.
1: You know, there's two beliefs I've heard that are incredibly dangerous, for Christians may go off to college. And it's not saying these beliefs are false. But if you make your these beliefs to your foundation, you're likely to be in a world of hurt in college. One of those is inerrancy. And that's when I do accept. The other one is when I don't accept, but I know many Christians who do, and this isn't anything against them. But that's young earth creationism. If you go vote, to and you make even one of those a pillar for your faith such that if it's knocked down then christianity comes tumbling down you're going to be in trouble
0: yeah and 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 the challenge is is that even even some of our um christian universities have gotten to a point where they're i think they're watered down with sexu- sec- secular uh reasoning and rationale and mm-hmm. so it, I think it's up to, um, certainly it's up to the parents to raise uh, their kids knowing the things of God, but just we as a wider body of the church and ministry, we, we've we got to get this information out to people, and that's why, again, my heart is to get the information of apologetics out to the masses. We were talking to William Lane Craig one time, and he has just been... You know, God has used him to do profound work for the kingdom, and I remember him saying his heart was for the universities, and and he does great work there. My heart is for the masses, and so I'm trying to write books that the layperson would want to pick up and, and read. I've already I'm on to my next one. I hope to finish it later this year, and it's not going to be football. It's going to be a little wider uh, field. It'll be interesting, but I I want to get at this and make sure everybody's aware of at least the
1: basics. Can you tell what field it is?
0: Yeah, so it's going to be an adventure book. It's going to be all story. So unlike this one, where it's story, and then we stop and talk about questions for uh, evidence and whatnot, this one's going to be all story. And it's an adventure. uh, And it's a family that is in uh, a lot of danger and in a journey to try and get home. um, and, And it allows for some dialogue about God. So I'll probably leave it there, but I think it's gonna. My wife, in reading that second one, liked it even more than the first one. So, again, it's it's for whatever God wants to do with it for His mm-hmm. kingdom. I'm just gonna try and write some things for people.
1: Well, maybe we can discuss it on the show here again as um, you well. Know, Sounds great. You know, when, when we were about this, I was, I can't but think that so many times my wife and I have had Mormons come by our place, and. To me, when Mormons come over, it's practically Christmas came early this year. It's such a delight to me get to talk with them. And they pour out this myth as well, about where, you know, the Bible's been changed over time. And I say, okay, what have you studied of textual criticism? Nope, most of the time they don't even know what that is. I mean, this is just such a common myth that everyone seems to say where the bible has been changed no one really knows how the bible came about though who uses this
0: you you're absolutely right and so there's two approaches um we you know that i i will sometimes take with those is to is to discuss the historical reliability Mm -hmm. and and i think that we're we're on very solid ground with the the words of scripture that we have and i think that they're the ones that have deviated and have to defend their position. But but even even without that, I tend to want to just use what they've got because there are certain verses they've changed, but there are ones that haven't been changed. So when you look at, like, the Gospel of John, the very beginning, it, they will change that, um, it, you know, verses 1 and 2. But if you go to verse 3— as my recollection, we both have the same verses there. Mm. And that talks about um, uh, basically the word was Jesus creating everything, everything, that everything has been created, has been done through the word. And so you, you ask them, if if Jesus created everything, how could Jesus have been a created being? So you, we can either argue for our historical liability, or we can even just use the things that we agree on, To show that Jesus is God as well.
1: You know, we've discussed some about the textual reliability, and it's true that definitely when it comes to the New Testament, we have more manuscripts of that than any other ancient document from the ancient world. I mean, it's not even close. There's no comparison whatsoever. But just because you have a text that's been handed down accurately, it doesn't mean the content of that text is accurate.
0: Yeah, and that's the, I totally agree, Nick, and that's the second part of the chapter. There's a few ways to argue that the author told the truth. Mm-hmm. We can verify some things with archaeology, et cetera. but one of the things that I really like is just the embarrassing details, and, you know, typically when we're reading our scripture, um, God is speaking to us, um, and, and as to certain aspects going on in our life, as we're getting His truth, but it's interesting when, if, when I've read it from an apologetic standpoint, there are a number of times when there's an embarrassing detail in there, yeah. And it's quite clear to me that if the author was making up this book Mm -hmm. to get people to follow a lie, that they wouldn't have included those embarrassing details. I mean, one of the clear ones is Peter, a leader of the church being called uh, Satan by Jesus, mm-hmm. saying you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. It, they wouldn't have put that in there if they were completely fabricating this story. So, And there's a number of these examples.
1: Yeah, overall in the Gospels, the disciples do not come out golden. If anything, they come out as kind of like, like if you picture some movie where you get the evil mastermind of sorts, but then he's got these bumbling idiots around him who don't seem to do anything right, and they keep foiling everything. The disciples kind of seem like that sometimes. Uh, absolutely,
0: and, you know, and they're leading the church after, after um, Jesus has, has died and been resurrected. So, if, again, if they're making this up, if they're fabricating this story, why are they going to portray themselves as as uh as uncaring they fall asleep on jesus they don't get certain concepts they have infighting among them who's the greatest i mean they, you're right they don't come they don't come out looking uh very good and and why is that it's again because they wrote down what actually happened they didn't yeah. make up this story
1: yeah and I, I do think there's a whole lot in archaeology as well about vaccines so many things that we've found that show the reliability of the New Testament. One of the positions I used to do pretty often, but I don't really anymore... because it's just gotten so darn tiresome to me over and over... is the arguments of the Jesus mythicists. Even so far that I was caught on a podcast before to debate Ken Humphreys... on the topic of did Jesus exist. And something you notice is when they make these arguments... They often violate their own standards. Like for instance, say like, there are no contemporary sources and such. I remember being debate and said, um, Ken, let me ask you this. Do you think Josephus existed? I am absolutely certain Josephus existed. Okay, can you name me any 1st century references that mention him? Uh, um, There aren't any, okay? I mean, you could say Josephus works himself, but you know that could just as easily be a forgery. So, that, that, so that's not really convincing. No sources outside really mention Josephus, and yeah, you go say, "Oh yeah, Josephus existed," but that same sound doesn't seem to apply to Jesus. You're you're a hundred percent right. I mean, really, the the historical
0: evidence for for the Bible, mm-hmm. and, and especially when we're talking New Testament right now, you know, it, it is is uh, is incredible. It uh, is is extraordinary. There's so much historical evidence for it and really what what happens is is because there are miracles mm-hmm. included in it it gets dismissed but if you just looked at it at face value with the same historical tools and tests it, it comes out as the most historically reliable book of 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 antiquity
1: yeah I, I, it's my opinion that if the bible did not contain miracles we would be treating it in a totally different light. All historians say, gosh, if only we had material like this, I am convinced it's a bias against miracles that's really of a problem for people believing the New Testament.
0: Yeah, and it, yeah, you know, I just recently heard Greg Coco make this point. I know others have well, but um, it was interesting that everybody believes in a miracle. Uh, the be, the beginning of the universe, mm-hmm. right? It's, um, you know, we as Christians believe that was a miracle. You had you had um, something from nothing, creation ex nihilo. That was a, a miracle. But you know what? So do the nonbelievers believe that if, if there was a beginning of the universe and you went from nothing to what you've got now in nature, that is supernatural. So they also believe in miracles. They just don't like the ones in Scripture.
1: Yeah, and... Honestly, we live in a day and age where miracles... The arguments are getting better and better. Sometime in the near future, we hope to have on Tim McGrew again to talk for an hour about miracles. But we have had Craig Keener come on a number of times. So the first time he came on was talk about his massive two-volume work, Miracles. And honestly, Craig Keener's a great guy. He's done so much to contribute to New Testament scholarship. If you ask me, what is the most important work he has written to help us in our task as Christian apologists and such. I'd say miracles right there. That that book is so incredible.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I haven't been through both volumes, but I like how he really talks about the entire topic. Um, and I like the, the modern day miracles that he includes in there and the evidence. That that work is, is fantastic.
1: Yeah. And um, you're yeah, yeah. The the whole biasing, I also like to bring up uh, John Ehrman's book, and he's an agnostic, and yet he wrote the book Hume's Abject Failure, where he talked about Hume's arguments and said, If we followed Hume's arguments against miracles, and we were consistent with them, we would eliminate miracles, yes, but we would also eliminate modern science, as it is. A- absolutely yeah i mean you know hume's line of thinking
0: you really couldn't have the beginning of or the origin of the universe or or the origin of life you know it just uh, so uh i know it resonated at the time but i think hume's argument is something that we can easily deal with with what we know today
1: actually tim mcgrew and what i've read from him he said that even in hume's time his argument had several critics and they were critics who understood inductive reasoning ...even better than he did. And so they were able to point out all the flaws. And so that like Craig Keener show was very interesting. Is one of the reasons... ...Hume held this kind of opinion was because... ...in many ways, sadly, he was very racist... ...in his approach. And he thought that, you know, all these... ...poor, uneducated people and such... ...these are the ones that don't... ...that, that, that believe in the miracles, but... ...those of us who are educated... ...where well, we know better... And we talked about someone who was a black man who had received a Ph.D. or was a poet and such. And he said, well, this is probably someone like a parrot who can recite a few phrases. No, this guy had a Ph.D. in the fields and was fluent in languages and such. So Hume had just simply dismissed cases beforehand. I I totally agree. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point before we get to the next section look at it better. You're listening to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Everything we do here is supported by people like you. And, well, if... I'd really appreciate it if you'd support us. You know, just go to our website, deeperwatersapodjects.com. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you go and click that link... You get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes. Those so, so are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And, you go there, and you make your donation, meaning you get in touch with me, or my wife, Ari, or Mike, or Debbie. In fact, this happened this week, someone got in touch with me, wanting to help, and say, hey, I made a donation. I won't go to Nick Peters. I won't go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation, and it will be tax deductible. and, Folks, it really warms my heart to see those donations come in so much. And we, we always need more of them, really. And you can also buy eBooks I've written, such as The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, or co-written, such as Defying Inerrancy or Contextualizing Inerrancy, or the book that I co-wrote, looking at Dan Barker, Groundless, or God and natural disasters, or Christian answers to this generation's questions. <laughs> and, well, sadly, the jewelry store thing is no longer with us. The lady who was doing that says that she's moved on from that, so that's no longer with us. But if if you can also just go on iTunes if you can't afford to do anything, and just leave a positive review for the Deep waters podcast, that would be awesome, and I'd love to see them... Tell your friends about the show. Share it on Facebook. Anything you can to get the word out. It's really good for us. Now, Jason, do you have a charity or organization you would like? to See people donate to. Uh,
0: well, you know, I'll, I will. I'll say two. First off, I would. Uh, the first one I would just say is to is to echo what you said, Nick, in uh, Deeper Waters. Just as we, you know, we've started to get to know each other here. Uh, I appreciate your passion and love for the the lord and and the work you're doing and in your heart. and so I would encourage uh, those to to give to your uh, ministry. Um uh, the other one that i uh, I recommend to that i I have gotten a lot of value out of is uh, stand to reason, you know uh, with greg cokel and uh, and his entire team. Um, I, I'm always sure to listen to those podcasts. so that's another one that I uh, firmly believe in that ministry.
1: Yeah, Greg Coker, like I said, has been on twice, and he he really is a great guy, and I've got to meet him in person a few times, and every time, it's a blessing. He's one of the most real people that I know, and just enjoy being around him so much. Now, let's get back to your book, and again, I'm going to be jumping around here a little bit, because since we've talked about the library scripture, I think it's you know, we might actually want to talk about the person of Jesus a little bit for Christianity. I think he plays some kind of important role to the system, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he is he is the
0: cornerstone. He is he is of utmost importance.
1: Yeah, there is something interesting about Jesus when you look at history, that for most figures, we have a clear idea in ancient history of you know, the kinds of things they did. But when it comes to Jesus, the big question we seem to be asking is, who was Jesus?
0: Yeah, and I and I uh, remember um, a- as a child growing up, you know and, and my parents are uh, are Christians, they're, they're, they were you know Catholics, but they you know I didn't I don't know that I, I didn't fully grasp what Christianity was and I remember a long time I was a kid, but I was thinking, you know, what, what was the importance of Jesus? You know, God is what matters. What is the importance of Jesus? And you can see just from that statement, I really was kind of lost in math theology because, um, you know, obviously Jesus is God. He he is part of the Trinity, and he is core to this entire rescue plan that God has for mankind. You know, and I kind
1: so of have the same kind of problem as you did. Actually, I remember seeing hymns in my Methodist church growing up and— Thing was about You know, it sounds, I wonder if God ever regrets sending Jesus, because Jesus seemed to get all the popularity after that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and and um, I think it's just, you uh, know, I don't know how many others struggle with this. And so that's so why I wanted to have a, a devoted chapter to it um, who, of the identity mm-hmm. of who Jesus is. And I, I, again, I use the football illustration to kind of make the point but but i quickly turn to you we can tell from scripture based on what jesus said and what jesus did that he identified and claimed to be god mm-hmm. and 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 then it was validated through the works that were done as well as his resurrection but but who jesus is is of utmost importance i mean you ask You ask a lot of people, and unfortunately some people who claim to be Christians who Jesus was, and they might say good teacher and just, um, you know, he's um, um, a prophet. They might have something else, but they might stop short of saying God, and that's just not essential core Christian doctrine.
1: You know, one of the things that strikes me, I hear, Christians is that there's very little emphasis in most churches today on the doctrine of the Trinity, I, I happen to go with something Greg Korkle said. I've only heard a handful of sermons in the church on the Trinity, and I can't... The reason I heard them is I was the one who was preaching them. And <laughs> when you ask most Christians about what they believe about Jesus, they will actually give a modalist answer for the Trinity. you say, well, I'm in God, well, I'm... The man might say, "Well, I'm a son, and I'm a father, and I'm a husband." That's kind of like what God's like. No, that's not what He's like, at all. And you, you, something you can even learn to do is to examine the prayers people make. And even in your church, you just listen and see what happens. Because too long, you hear them saying, "Thank you, Father," so and so may keep going on on and say. Thank you for dying on the cross. No, no, you're getting that wrong again. And most of our churches don't really emphasize a good proper Christology.
0: Yeah, I think it was in R.C. Sproul, one of R.C. Sproul's book, uh, who is a, you know, a great theologian who said this is this is one of the most anti intellectual that the church has been is. You know, we just we have lost the the deep training and education and insight on doctrine, and then also being able to defend our faith. We we just we needed we need uh, uh, more teaching around this aspect because this part is is core, right? Mo, you mentioned modalism. We'll also hear the illustration too, around water, right, where where God is kind of you, you know you can look at ice and you can look at um, water, and then there's water vapor, and that's just that's how you could explain how God is three and one again. That's that's modalism, and that's easily uh, defeated when you look at scriptures like the you know the baptism. Mm-hmm. You know the they they weren't in three different modes. They were all there in in different forms and and illustrations, but they were all distinct yet all one. So I think modalism again was a heresy. It's easily defeated. Um. So but Trinity, it's a it's a it's a hard concept. It's a paradox. It's it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox, but it's still something that we should hold to because uh, Scripture tells us.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's and we should all strive to understand more and more. It's really kind of a birthright. When we have the Jehovah's Witnesses come by, I usually say, patrandy is this doctrine that most Christians ignore until the Jehovah's Witnesses come by. I mean, they unlock the Trandy box to beat up the Jehovah's Witnesses if they can't even go about their lives and such. And most of them, though, they honestly couldn't deal with a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, Walter Martin found the original Bible Answer Man of Christian Research Institute said that the average Jehovah's Witness can turn the average Christian into a doctrinal pretzer in 90 seconds or less.
0: <laughs> you know, I had an engagement um, uh, with, uh, I think it was a Jehovah's Witness at the time, and they were, I think, as I recall that they were saying that the holy spirit is like this impersonal spirit. And I said, well consider in, you know, the book of Acts when um uh you know that there was uh money that was given and there was a lie, you know, and Peter was confronting the person about it. If you go back to that passage, it says that, you know, the holy spirit has been grieved. Mm-hmm. How, how do you make an impersonal spirit? How do they come to a point where they could ha- experience grief? They really can't. And so there's certain scripture verses that clearly show that the Holy Spirit is a person. You know, so they, they just don't, I don't know that they understand, they, they clearly have the theology wrong and don't understand the aspects of, of scripture and how that's lifting out and informing our theology.
1: Mm-hmm. And Vitrandi, the I think, really shows us how we're supposed to relate to one another. The love that we are supposed to share as a community, I mean, Jesus prays that we are be one, just as he and the Father are one. I mean, that's the kind of unity we're supposed to have and such. And my wife and I was talking to someone last now who does some counseling and such, and he asked me, you know, like, how does your theology inform your relationship and such. And I'd say, Well, Jesus, it, it informs everything. You know what I mean? When like for instance, if my wife does something that I think is wrong to me, I usually pause and I can say, Okay, but uh, do I treat Jesus any better than that? I mean if I think she's more interested in something else than she is in me, that's hurt for unless it's God of course, which she should be more interested in that. But I would say that seems kind of hurt for but you know there are many times God's supposed to be number one in my life and I'm pursuing all these other things instead. And then when you look at the marriage unity that husband and wife are supposed to have, particularly in sexuality, that's supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church together, and honestly. The love there is supposed to be just like the love of Trinity. Nothing hidden, nothing secret, full embrace, and joy of the other for the sake of the other. And that's the way it's supposed to be
0: yeah t- totally agree i mean i've heard the the illustration that the family unit you know is modeled after the trinity it is you know you, you can see that in certain uh possibly certain aspects of creation and i and i try to you know you can you know sometimes we read things into them that are not there but i think that there are uh clearly some um representations of god's trinity and clearly the family the other thing i would say with the trinity and again i have to give credit to, to Greg Kogel on this, I just because I I don't want them to come across as my ideas, but I, I like how his ministry has said that the that the Trinity is a solution. Yeah. it's a solution yeah. to the question around how could God be love prior to creation. You know, if you have a Trinity and you've got three and one, they can be in a love relationship prior to creation. All the the other religions that are monotheistic, where it's just another God. How could they have? How could they be a god of love? Because there's there's nothing to um, uh, portray love onto. It, it's only themselves at that point. But the Trinity allows for 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 an infinite love relationship.
1: And uh, before we move on, to resurrection resurrection, I could say that there are many other things we know about the historical Jesus as well. And something like Gary Habermas has kept impressing on me over I was says: You know, if you went back fifty years ago. Many of these would be debated. Today, even the liberal scholars acknowledge a lot of these, such as, you know, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, about when he was born, about when he died. Uh, that... Here's a big one. He had a reputation as a healer and an exorcist. I mean, They won't necessarily agree he was that, but that he certainly had that reputation, that he taught the kingdom of God, that he had an incident involving the temper that did damage to his ministry and such. I mean, so many of these things, it's incredible the things that are accepted about Jesus now that would have been called into question largely 50 years or so ago. It, absolutely, yeah. I, I was fortunate to have Gary Habermas as my
0: summer instructor mm-hmm. uh, when I went to Iola as part of the resurrection class. and um, And I remember him making that point, is how we have— we have uh, moved towards a point where even the dating of the gospels yeah. ha- has, is now clearly first century now the more liberal scholars will put it a little bit later than some of the more conservative scholars and where i would put it but they're first century now they're not farther than that so yeah this this is this has moved to just add to the evidence pointing to the reliability and truth of scripture mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's talk some more about Jesus with the grand central question, as it were, and this is you know the one that's considered a big prize in New Testament scholarship, and that comes to the question of what happened after Jesus died.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's the most uh, important question, uh, as I've heard uh, as I've read. Uh, Josh McDowell say, I mean this this is either the greatest. Event in the history of mankind, or this is like the the biggest hoax oh. that has led so many people astray, and everything comes down to this. Because if this is the truth, this is the key to eternal life. This is the path, the rescue plan that God has provided. And so, knowing the evidence around this is is paramount. Um, I recently at Easter, recently taught just some um, fourth and fifth graders at our church some of the evidence are around the resurrection. Every Christian should know some of these fundamental pieces. And here, you know, I, I put it in a little bit different format, but here I owe, owe a great indebtedness um, uh, uh, and, and gratitude to Gary Habermas and and Mike Lacona, the research that they have done, and and the approach they take with saying, you know what, we're just gonna use um, points of evidence that are clearly supported, and even skeptics agree with these points. And put it in a way to show that just these core historical facts are only explained uh, by the resurrection, and these other uh, uh, theories out there fall apart. They don't. They they're not supported by one or more of these facts. So again, this is a tremendous um, evidence that that gives me an intellectual love for the Lord. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'd also add in N.T. Wright to that as well, that he's done a great service too in defending the Resurrection. And I've had to, uh, from Mike's work, I've sometimes when he's done debate, bad, he's wanted me to go through some books of uh, offers he's going to be debating and say, okay, tell me what you think, see if there's anything that you see that I might have missed and such. So I've had to read some of these books arguing against the Resurrection, and usually... They're pretty bad. I mean, it, it's <laughs> honestly, yeah, I, I can't go with some. I think Robbie Zacharias once said, but it, it's easier to believe in the resurrection than it is to believe in the explanations to explain the resurrection. Uh, absolutely, yeah. They all they all fall apart. I mean, you.
0: The only thing that I I think you'd have to maybe say that there's a combination of theories because there's there's too much historical evidence for one theory to um, to explain. Uh, and But the combination theory falls apart because why would I believe all these different things? The disciples stole the body or the women went to the wrong tomb and Paul had a, uh, a conversion complex. I mean, all these various things would have to happen. It's just easier to believe that Jesus was resurrected, especially, as William Lane Craig says, against the backdrop that God exists. If God exists, which again, I think there's very strong evidence for, Believing in the resurrection is not that big of a leap.
1: Yeah, I mean... If you took just one piece of evidence... By itself... That might not be a lot. I mean, if your only piece of evidence was... Whether disciples were convinced they'd seen Jesus alive again... After his resurrection... After his death... That by itself would probably not be too much. And you could probably say... Yeah, that's hallucinations at that point. And then that could work. But when you combine everything together. We say, well, but yeah, but we know he died by crucifixion and we know he was buried and most scholars will say the tomb was found empty as well. Some would disagree with that. Most everyone agrees with the appearances and most everyone agrees with the conversion of skeptics Paul and James. And I'd add in some other things that we, uh, the gospel was preached in the area of Jerusalem pretty much immediately. They didn't go off to some faraway place where no one could verify things. And one of my favorite points to use is that if you were making up a religion in the first century, Christianity is a textbook example of when you would not make up. Because in the culture that it was made in, that it was formed that came Baron. It was utterly shameful. It would cure your reputation to be a Christian. It violated every single social rule, pretty much, and yet it's the religion that came out on top. And this without say like the sword that Islam used, which by the way is a very effective evangelism technique it looks like. But I mean there's really no comparison to it.
0: A- absolutely so i love the the core ones with the the appearances the conversions the empty tomb as as you said those are just some core ones i think every christian should know so the conversion of paul is just a, a, a tremendous evidence again that supports all of this but um you know so so those are very powerful and i think are best explained clearly by the resurrection but as you said nick there there are some other ones you know and uh, i think it was william lane craig i had heard that said that you know the uh, this this transformation of for the um the disciples who were who were Jews right i mean if jesus if they hadn't seen jesus they wouldn't have continued to follow jesus they would have thought that um uh, they would have thought negative about him that he was you know uh, not the messiah it would have really taken the seeing him in the resurrection for them to then uh, not not practice as a Jew, to stop sacrificing and to um, uh, not doing some of the Jewish things they would do, really leave that and and start following Christ and serving by
1: spirit. Yeah, and I mean I also like the point that N.T. Wright and others have made. You know, if you were walking down the street and you saw your dead uncle Fred alive again and you had a conversation with him, and you might think, My gosh, God is doing something strange in this universe. You were not you mean to go to your friends and family and say, Fred's the Messiah. Fred's the Messiah
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh you know, and this goes back to one of the the things we talked about with embarrassing details. My I uh I believe I put in the book here my one of one of my favorite verses is Matthew twenty eight seventeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is after the resurrection, and it, and it said that uh, they saw him uh, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. a little bit, but and that is so powerful to me because when it says that they saw him, they're saying that the resurrection has occurred and they saw him, and it said that they worshipped him. Again, worship is only um, supposed to be done towards God. And so, again, that's speaking to the identity of Jesus. But then when you add to that, the author says, but some doubted. Again, that's an embarrassing detail that if they were making this up, they wouldn't have included. Mm-hmm. So you've got the resurrection, you've got the identity of Jesus, and then this embarrassing detail that supports that it was a true statement.
1: And then, of course, that's I forget, the other embarrassing detail, the women being the first one to find the body. Because if you were making the story up by guy, if Peter was my next make story, would be like, yeah, and me and the boys, we went down there to that tomb, and we were ready to take on those Roman guards, and we were going to take the body and give Jesus a good, proper barrier, but, well, we saw the resurrected Jesus, and that changed everything. And now, you have women coming here, and even when the women first show up and tell what they've seen, the response is, you're crazy, you're just being typical women, now that that's what I think, that's what they thought, and just believing these wives' tales and such.
0: Yeah, and and, and uh, so that that is a fantastic point. Again, I, and that I, I include in the book as well because as as historians have have showed us, and I know Gary and 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 Mike have mentioned this, is that you know the context of first century Palestine, women were not considered uh, credible witnesses in the same way that men were. So, again, to put them down as the first one seeing uh, or, or seeing that the tomb was empty and also the first one seeing Jesus, you know, again, it, they wouldn't have done
1: that if they were fabricating this story. Now, I think we should also spend a little bit more time on the conversion of Paul, because this one is quite humorous to me, because usually I get told us where Paul had a guilt complex where Paul was wrestling with cognitive dissonance and such. And, I mean, this is a kind of psycho history that went out of style a long time ago. It's, I mean, my wife has to go see a psychiatrist and such regularly. It's hard enough to diagnose someone when you can interview them with them sitting right there talking to you, and you getting to ans- ask them the questions you want and they answering you. It's hard enough to diagnose someone like that. But you go to someone who speaks a different language in a different time, a different place, in a different social culture and everything else like that, and you think you're going to be able to accurately diagnose their condition? Uh-huh. I'm skeptical.
0: Yeah. Again, I think it demonstrates that it's one of those things where they just don't want to believe the easy, simple answer. Uh, it's just, It really just pure speculation without um, without any really supporting points for it. If you look at Scripture, uh, Paul says w- what happened to him. Mm. Go back and look in Galatians, but then also the book of Acts and what Luke wrote. It is recording the conversion. So it clearly something changed with Paul, and if you go on Luke's description and what Paul's words are, he clearly had a convert. He he didn't say that, you know, he kind of felt bad. I'm, I'm doing bad things, and he decided to do a 180. No, he said he had an experience with the risen Lord, and that's why he changed.
1: And I see some people say, where well, Paul wouldn't have a good place of leadership if Jesus called to advance his own career and such. Yeah, Paul, who was up and coming in the Sanhedrin and not everything, decided to reject this great position that he would have been in and become... Kind of a leader in this ragtag group that was being persecuted everywhere right
0: yeah I mean he didn't he didn't uh, uh, change uh, change paths because he wanted riches and fame I mean as scripture records he went through a tremendous amount of suffering and pain uh, again what what would lead him to do that he's, he's a Jew of Jews he's following down a certain path. Uh, probably going to lead a better life, maybe, maybe at least uh, from from the earthly perspective, following that course of action. But instead, it's interrupted by the Lord, and and again, the best explanation for that is Jesus really appeared to him.
1: Mm-hmm. Now we should definitely spend some time talking about the creed in First Corinthians fifteen, because I mean, when Gary Habermas was on Unbelievable one time, and he was put alongside James Crossley, and he was asked to give a basic idea of the facts of the historical Jesus and resurrection that would be agreed upon by skeptical scholars, he lays out much of a minimal facts approach and such. And Justin Browdy, the host, goes to James Crossley and says, do you want to dispute any of that? None of it whatsoever. And James Crossley even says about the creed in First Corinthians 15, says, this is a gold mine. Right here. I mean, this is the stuff that Ancient, histor- ancient historians wish we had in pretty much every single other area of ancient history. This is stuff we would, they would be jumping up and down with glee if they could find more of this stuff.
0: Yeah, and you have, uh, again, so for somebody looking into this topic, you've got to put yourself uh, back in that time period. You know, they, they don't have computers and storing stuff and whatnot, so a lot of what we have, for for all of that time of antiquity is is ancient and old and whatnot. But when it comes to the New Testament, we've got really early sources. And First uh, Corinthians 15. This is when I had Gary sign one of my books. He referenced that First mm-hmm. Corinthians 15 because it is so powerful um, as a point for the yep. resurrection. I know in one of his works he had dated it to within two to eight years. Uh, of the of the actual event of Jesus, that's what scholars were dating it at. Not you know, and then I heard that there were others who dated it within months. It's one of the earliest creeds from a Christian perspective. Again, recorded in First Corinthians fifteen, around the resurrection. Very powerful point that counters the notion that this evolved over time. This
1: point of resurrection, no way. This was right from the onset. Yeah, James Dunn is one of the people of it dates it to within a few months and such and Gary nowadays says no one really dates this to more than five years after the event. And Absolutely. You know, something else that amazes me about the historical Jesus is you look at the scholarship of someone like say Richard Baucom who's been on the show twice by the way and uh, how he has a saying and I don't remember what order it came in but he says it's either the earliest Christology is the highest Christology, or the highest Christology is the earliest Christology. Either way, we're both kind of saying the same thing, and that's something else that just amazes me about the person of the historical Jesus. That you look at the Christology that developed, and it's high going right out the gates. I mean, like once the resurrection takes place, the idea immediately is. Jesus is fully God, fully man.
0: Yeah. Again, I think for for people who don't know this uh, evidence and these points, they can fall into the trap of um, the, these these internet talking points that this could have evolved over decades or centuries, and things things could have changed over time. It's just it's just not the case. As you said, Nick, this is a a high Christology of who Jesus is and what happened to him from the very early onset. And that's what the evidence supports.
1: You know, as we're wrapping things up, we have to get to the conclusion of this interview soon because in about seven minutes I'm going to start wrapping things up entirely. But, you know, what's your hope for what happens when someone picks up this book?
0: Well, I I hope it is um, something that is a little bit of an easy read for what what can be a little bit of a challenging mm-hmm. topic. Um, again, my 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 wife is a strong believer in the Lord, um, and but you know all of us should have I think all of us should have a little bit of apologetics. She's not inclined to pick. Yeah, she's not inclined to pick up other apologetic books that I like. She likes stories and and things. And so I'm hoping that this might appeal to people who want to get a little bit of knowledge of the evidence for Christianity, but with a little bit of a lighter approach and with a story. And really, and here's the big thing, relating it to some football illustrations. As we said, no illustration is 100% perfect, but I'm hoping that that uh, maybe makes it a little bit easier to understand and also people remember it, right? So if on a Sunday afternoon we're watching some football, it might jog their memory when they see a kickoff or when they see um, uh, a fair catch or some kind of play that we call a miracle. It might it might remind them of some of the points in the mm-hmm. book.
1: And I'll, I'll grant you this definitely. It is it is a short read. I think I had it read in like a couple of days or so, and it, it definitely is an easy read. So a layman could get to it. get through me. If you wanted to go through and follow the whole story, you can do that. But you've got it laid out also that if someone had got done, they just said, "Well, I've read through this. I don't want to go through the whole story again. I just want to look at this chapter and see what points were made." Well, you've got it that they can do that as well.
0: Yeah, and then and then uh, if you like some, if you're a little bit new to apologetics and you like some of the content, again the sources, uh, I've got a lot of the sources referenced back there, um, and again we've talked about several of them on this podcast, but things from like a like a Gary Habermas and um, and Greg Kokel and William Lane Craig and some others that are that are in there, you can find that in some of the appendix for certain points. Now you
1: do have a chapter in here about the decision and such, so ultimately. Why do you think someone should make the decision to go with Team Jesus? Well, I, I think
0: uh, at the end of the day, this is the most important decision that, that any of us make. You know, uh, clearly, you know, eternity is a long time, mm-hmm. right? And, and we, we worry about things in this life. But after we pass away, um, if we believe in a soul, and, and again, we talk about near-death experiences, Leads us to believe that that's clearly the case, and I think Scripture supports that. All of that, our soul is going to go somewhere, and and what Christianity and, and Scripture says is that we die once. Hebrews nine twenty seven, we die once, and after that there is judgment. There's not second chances, and so getting this right is of the utmost importance for the eternal destination of our soul. And so I wanted this book to provide some information to help people to be confident in making that decision for Team Jesus.
1: Now, let's suppose we have someone who picks up this book, and they are not a Christian, they're a skeptic, and they say, you know, you've made an interesting case, I'm not sold 100% yet, but you've given me something to think about. What do you recommend they do at that point?
0: Uh, I would suggest if it, if it's basically given them something to think about and not fully convinced, uh, I would recommend a couple of things. Number one, you know, reach out to God in prayer. Uh, you know, Scripture tells us that those who seek God, you know, God will reveal himself. And so, you know, before I would start recommending all these different books, if you're truly open to pursuing God, seek God in prayer. Um, so that's that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, you know, start to read His Word. Open the Bible. There's, you know, there's lots of great books out there, but getting the truth about God directly from His Word is, I, I think, the the best way. And and probably start with the Gospels, right? I mean, you could start with Genesis, and that's going to tell you the whole story of God's salvation for mankind. But that might be a little overwhelming. Maybe start with the with the God with the Gospels, with the ministry. Uh, uh, of of Jesus. So prayer, Bible, um, those would be the clearly the two that I would recommend. Also finding um, you know a good church. Uh, again, i'm 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 Protestant, so I'm gonna recommend and finding a good Protestant church or whatnot. Um, and on top of all that, again, I, there are some sources. If you want more Christian apologetics, you know, again, you, you've you got a, a ministry, Nick. Uh, they go to Stand to Reason. There is some books I reference in the appendix. You could go and, and get some more information there uh, to see if they can continue to try and pursue yeah, God. Yeah,
1: I think you and I would both be of the same opinion when it comes to this, that our works aren't supposed to be the end all and such. We're just a doorway Pointing to the leading scholars that know more than we do about this kind of topic.
0: A- Absolutely. I, I know uh, you know Greg Cochle, I-, I mentioned him a lot because again, he's had a profound impact. He calls himself a generalist. he He has not uh, done a lot of the studying, but Greg has a specific skill set the Lord has blessed him with to take the information from a William Lincoln or Gary Habermas, and, and put it in a way to communicate to others. And that's how I try to do this. I'm not a uh, an expert in the fields of history or science, etc. I'm just trying to take some of the knowledge that I, I have been educated in and try and communicate it to others.
1: Well, we're coming to the time that we need to start wrapping things up here and such. Do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can find out more if they want to get in touch with you and such?
0: I do not, as of this point, but it is coming uh, with the second book. So, working on the second book and um, a website and uh, mm-hmm. other things of ways of communicate. So, it's not ready yet, but be on the lookout for later in 2019. Okay, the
1: book everyone is called "Ready, Set, God." Now, as of time of this broadcast, on Amazon, the Kindle version is free the hardcover is 715 and the paperback is 686. Now, Jason, do you have any final words you'd like to leave for the deeper Waters audience?
0: Well, I just I first want to uh, say thank you to you uh, Nick, a sincere thank you. I know I I had reached out, um, and uh, you were gracious enough to uh, to accept, uh, you know, a copy and, and give it a read, even though you're not a football guy. And so I want to, first off, thank you, and, and then the opportunity to come on to your podcast. Uh, so I really appreciate that, and um, just uh, a- encourage everyone to uh, uh, continue growing in the Lord. If this is a book that you think would be of interest— Uh, to maybe pick it up and and maybe it's not for you maybe it's it's someone else that you know who likes football and is open to a little bit of evidence they might like it as well
1: well I'd like to thank you for coming on and hopefully we will see you on here later on in 2019 when your next book comes out
0: that sounds terrific
1: and I'd remind everyone that next week we're going to have Ken Sampars on talking about his book Classic Christian Thinkers. for now I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off